Hello, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies on the New Books Network. My name is Diana Dehanova, and I will be your host today. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Anne Lounsbury, who is professor and chair of the Department of Russian and Slavic Studies at New York University. We will be discussing her 2019 monograph, Life is Elsewhere, Symbolic Geography in the Russian Provinces, 1800 to 1917. Dr. Lounsbury, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Now, to begin, uh, could you tell me a little bit about how the idea for this project originated and what your research process was like? Sure. Well, I can remember almost the day that I started to think about this question. Um, I was in graduate school, actually. I hadn't even published my first book yet, um, which which came out uh, about 10 years ago. And um, I was studying American literature as well as Russian literature and American literature in the 19th century is really driven by regionalism, regionalist writers, regionalist perspectives. And I remember looking at the Russian tradition and feeling this moment of estrangement and thinking, well, where's the regionalism? Um, You know, what's going on here? You have this huge, diverse place um, and you really have a a very... um, minimal presence for literary realism. And then I started thinking about Goreden, all of these town X's that populate 19th and also 20th century Russian literature. And I started wondering what that was about. So that was really how the how the project originated, is wondering, seeing seeing an absence really and wondering why that absence had had occurred. Um, and how would you describe your theoretical approach um, to this uh, question? I would describe my approach as both highly theoretical and um, very eclectic. So, you know, I was trained in comparative literature. My PhD is in comparative literature. We got giant doses of theory. Um, and when when I was sort of taking in that theory, I wasn't always sure that it was going to be meaningful to me. Um, it, it seemed to sort of like hover on the surface of what I was doing a lot of the time. But while I was writing this book, I became aware that it was completely essential to what I was doing. So for example, if I had not read Naomi Shore's book, uh, reading in detail, which is a book that comes out of the French deconstructionist tradition, um, and feminist tradition, I really would not have been able to make sense of Russian Bredinsia in the way that that I have. And um, that is really due entirely to theoretical reading. So as far as what kinds of theory, really a lot. I mean, kind of native Slavic tradition like Bakhtin and Kronotok, um, plenty of formalism, but also a lot of French deconstructionist theory, which helps to understand some of the, the paradoxes, I think, that are at the heart of the Russian media provincia. Um, and uh, the, these these things, as I as I kept reading, I realized how present they were to me, and they were sort of activated in my mind a way that they that they hadn't been until I had to use them. So that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the start of the book, you establish the key binary that shapes how Russian literature represents the nation's physical space, and that's the binary between the stolitsa or capital and the provincia, the province. It's reflective of this overarching understanding of Russian geography that formed in the 19th century. Uh, could you briefly discuss how this binary was established, as well as the connotations of the two spaces in the Russian literary imaginary? 
Sure. I actually think I'm going to start with the second part of your question, which is what are the connotations of the two spaces? Um, and I'll start with Storitsa. So Storitsa is essentially a concentration of resources. And by resources, I mean not just sort of economic, but also semiotic, aesthetic, um, political power is obviously con uh, concentrated in the Storitsa. So you have this sort of like richness, variety, energy. It's perceived as being the, the vanguard. And it's it's where events happen. Capital H history happens, is linked to the Storitsa. Um, and as we'll talk about in a minute, we have two Storitsa. We have Peter, Petersburg and Moscow, but that doesn't keep it from occupying this like kind of hyper-central uh, space. And then Provincia is essentially the opposite of everything that I just said. So Staritsa is, I mean, Provincia is about iterativeness, repetition. No real events happen in the provinces. The provinces are associated with copying and repetition. They're outside of what you could think of as capital H history, public history. Um, they're about predictability, behindness, passive, inert, static. They're kind of waiting for, um, for movement to reach them from the outside. And the culture of the provinces, and this is always really interesting to me, it's represented as motley, right? It's sort of like this big, confused mess where these cultural elements are kind of thrown together as if they washed up on the shore. They don't have anything to do with each other. And you have, starting already in the 1830s, you have words like balota and grias, um, and swamp and mud, always associated with provinces. So those are, those are the two binaries. As far as how they took shape, um, I mean, that's kind of what I, I spent a few years trying to figure that out. Um, I think that ultimately it has to do most of all with political power. And the fact that this, the resources of power, um, are so concentrated in the Russian tradition and also resources for producing culture. So basically, even though people and culture exist in the provinces in real ways that have nothing to do with this list of negatives that I just gave you, the provinces as they're given to us are always represented from the center. Because the resources are in the center, you know, whether it's like writers, um, you know, uh, the states, printing presses, those things are in the center. So it's the center's gaze that defines the provinces. And that's why we get this sort of endless list of negatives that are associated with provincia. And I should have said from the beginning, and I'll keep saying again and again, this is not reality. I'm not describing what life in the Russian provinces was really like in the 19th century. I'm describing a trope. And um, it happens to me quite often that historians, for example, who work, who do serious work on provincial places, um, particular provincial places, uh, initially find my work uh, almost offensive because they think that I'm saying that this is really what the provinces were like. Um, and that's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying that there's this trope that's developed over time uh, it's counterfactual, but it's very powerful. Oh, that's that's really interesting. So there's a bit of a, a conflict between the understanding it through literature and understanding it through historical documents. That's uh, pretty common, right? 
And people who work, you know, I've, I've learned an enormous amount from historians who work on specific provincial places, Susan Smith-Peter, for example. Um, and what they're doing is trying to counter this trope. And I think the frustration, I imagine, for historians like this is that the trope is indeed so powerful, right? And that's why even today you meet educated Russians in Petersburg, in Moscow, who say things to me like, you can't live in the provinces, right? Um, or as one said to me, this was a Russian I met in Venice, actually, who asked me why I had gone to Vladimir. And she said, zombies live there, <laughs> right? So it's, it, it comes up a lot. And um, uh, it's no matter how many people try to counter this, this kind of imaginary version of the provinces, I think also uh, Catherine Dupola's work, um, it's, it's, it's hard to push back against it, actually. Uh, so the subject of your book, as you write in the introduction, I'm quoting, is not life as it was lived by real people in Russia's provinces. So as, as we were just saying, rather, it's the image of the provinces historically shaped but aesthetically and ideologically transformed as it finds expression in mainstream Russian literary culture, close quote. So therefore, symbolic geography is a key concept to your study. Uh, could you explain what's meant by this concept uh, and give an example of how it functions in one of the literary works that you analyze? Sure. Um, I think that the the quickest um, uh, definition of what symbolic geography is, it's just how we imagine meaning to inhere in geographic space, right? So it's not physical locations. It's not what we really experience in particular um, geographic locations, but it's how we believe that those those places and, and events are meaningful or meaningless. So first, before I give a couple of examples from Russian literature, I'll give the example that I often give to my American undergraduates, um, because there's a famous image from the 1970s. It was a cartoon that was on the cover of the New Yorker. It was drawn by Saul Steinberg. And what it's supposed to represent, it's a kind of a map, kind of a bird's eye view. And it's supposed to be what a Manhattanite sees as she or he is looking west across the country. So basically what that person in New York sees as she looks west across the United States is a lot of detail very close up in New York City, you know, like the Empire State Building and the East River and the, 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 the Hudson. Um, and then the next thing you see is Chicago. There's nothing after that. And then way, way off in the distance, you see Hollywood. And that's because according to the symbolic geography that shapes a certain kind of New Yorker's imagination, the middle of the country just doesn't exist, right? So that cartoon is a famous visualization of a certain way of imagining American space. So to give a couple of examples from Russian literature, um, well, there's a funny one in, in Gogol's Inspector General, and that is the way that the locals in this little Uyaznigore, this little this little kind of county seat town, how they imagine Petersburg. Um, and everybody in the town is kind of on the same page when it comes to imagining Petersburg as a place where all kinds of fantastic things are possible. For example, when Kristakov, um brags to the locals that 
he was at a party where a melon was, I think it was a melon, it was a Torino, no, it was a melon that cost thousands of rubles, which is, you know, clearly impossible. They all nod and go, yes, definitely. That's amazing. That's the kind of thing that happens in Petersburg because they already think of Petersburg in a particular way. And so he was able to essentially capitalize on this weird symbolic geography that's in their head, tell them all this stuff, and they were ready to believe it. They are also ready to believe that Petersburg could turn its scary eye on them at any moment. So on the one hand, they imagine Peter, they imagine Petersburg as this sort of the locus of all power and a kind of big eye that could look at you at any time. And that's both good and bad. It's bad because you're probably committing crimes and you're going to get in trouble. But it's good because once Peter, Petersburg looks at you, you actually exist. So that's why either Bobchinsky or Dobchinsky, I can't remember which of the, the characters um, in, in Gogol's uh, Inspector General, he says to Yestakov, please, sir, when you go back to Petersburg, can you tell people that I exist? Right? So it's like this, it's, it's the gaze, this sort of ordering logos of the center that actually makes you exist if you're on the periphery. And I'll, I'll give one other example quickly, and that's from Fathers and Sons. Um, and in Fathers and Sons, there's right at the middle of the book, there's this kind of interlude where the main characters visit an anonymous provincial town. So it's Gorod N, you know, like so many other Gorod Ns. And um, it, we're told that it's exactly like all other provincial towns. Bajarov said, Gorod, right? Eh, you don't need to know anything else. It's the same as all of them. And you get this sort of lousy, um, moderately cultured nigerista woman who stands for the trashiness of provincial culture. And she sort of blah, 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 goes on and on. Um, uh, and uh, at the end, we're told that the town burns down every five years and has to be built anew. So in effect, the Gorod N in Fathers and Sons tells us everything we need to know about the provincial town, which is that it's always the same. It burns down every five years and it's kind of the repository for a bunch of cultural detritus that's washed up on the shore from other places. Uh, so you've alluded to this a little bit already, but uh, throughout its history, uh, Russia had two capitals or centers, Stalitsy, uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg. Uh, so how did this come to be? And can you talk a bit about the physical and symbolic differences between the two capitals? Sure. So it came to be because uh, Peter the Great wanted to build, you know, to build his window to Europe and build a new capital um, that would represent everything he wanted Russia to be which would be European, um, dynamic, imperial. Um, the Petersburg obviously represents the sort of rigidity and artificiality of the imperial state, also the imperial state's energy, right? And even today um, in, in the city's architecture, we can see those aspirations of Peter that kind of live on in the built environment, even though Petersburg is now very much a secondary capital. Moscow, we all know Moscow is old, organic, orthodox, traditional, Slavic, sleepy. Um, and if you, again, if you look at the physical layout of the city, you, you can see um, it's sort of medieval circular structure with the Kremlin in the middle, 
and then concentric circles moving out there, out, out from the center and other circles that were originally, I, I, I think, um, centered on churches scattered throughout the space of Moscow. Whereas in Petersburg, you have these long, straight avenues where, um, you know, you're supposed to see and be seen and where you're supposed to experience the grandeur of imperial power. Does that, does that help? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Honestly, one of the reasons I wrote this book was because I really did not want to talk about Moscow and Petersburg because I feel like they've kind of been beaten to death and the binary's been beaten to death. You know, we all know what Moscow stands for and what Petersburg stands for. Um, but the provinces seemed kind of weirdly underdescribed to me. So that was another thing that, that motivated the research. And oh, sorry, I should add one other thing, which is that even though um, we all know about this contrast between Moscow and Petersburg, once you start to think about the provinces, you realize that Moscow and Petersburg play precisely the same role. And it really doesn't matter whether the Stadica that you're talking about at a particular moment is physically located in Petersburg or in Moscow. It's, it's a kind of elusive center, right? As long um, uh, you know, you can move it around. The important thing is that it's Stalitsa and everything else is Provincia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, this kind of difference that's so important to the inhabitants of Moscow and St. Petersburg is uh, to those in the provinces are kind of, uh, that basically mean the same thing, right? This kind of right. aspirational center. Right. right. And the way that you um, saw those provincials looking at Petersburg, it's exactly the same as uh, how Chekhov's provincials look at Moscow later in the century. Now, there's another important opposition that you establish, which is between the provinces and the colonies. Uh, so how does the understanding of the two places differ? Well, um, part of the problem is that it's not always entirely clear. Um, and so, for example, I, I open the book by thinking about a Chekhov story. It's usually translated as um, unofficial business. And in this story, one of the characters completely conflates Revinsa and Colonia. And he says, you know, my Russia, my Rodina, um, is the capitals, Moscow and Petersburg, not Revinsa, not Colonia. Those are not my Russia. Those are not the places where we really live. So I think one thing that happens is because Russia is a contiguous empire, in an empire, but a contiguous one, there's a kind of blurring of the boundary between provinces and colonies. Um, now, clearly, once you get to the imperial periphery, the real periphery, if you're in Central Asia, Caucasus, um, you're in a place that's culturally exotic, possibly racially distinct, right? And then you know that you're in a place that's different. Colonies are usually usually characterized by difference, right? Difference from the imperial metropole. Provinces are usually characterized, and I mean in the Russian tradition and other traditions too, by familiarity and sameness, right? So um, these Russian provincial places, unlike the colonies, are usually represented as places you, you already know, places that are predictable, places that are the same. But the problem is there are all these kind of liminal in-between spaces, like, for example, the steppes for, for much of the 19th century, which you're not really sure which they are. Um, and then, again, in political and economic terms, as, as historians have argued, um, the Russian provinces have, also, have often been treated by the central state 
as colonies in the sense that they're, they extract resources from them, right? The estate kind of exploits the provinces, the Russian provinces, um, in the way that we think of colonies being exploited. So I would say it's, it, it, what's interesting is that it's kind of hard to pin down, really, that difference. Uh, so you mentioned this before um, in the discussion of Inspector General and go, like kind of the Google universe in general, um, that there's a certain inferiority complex that shapes the way that provincial people perceive their own environment in comparison to the capitals. And there's this kind of never ending effort to catch up. Uh, and you also described the way that provincial landowners strove to make their estates self-sufficient centers rather than outposts of the capital. Uh, so could you talk a bit about uh, these two approaches to understanding the relationship between these spaces? Sure. Well, um, the provincial inferiority complex is my absolute favorite thing about provincials. I love it. Um, I identify as a provincial in that sense. Um, and I think it's actually really, really productive aesthetically and intellectually to feel oneself to be an inferior outsider, right? And there, there's this kind of intense concentration that comes along with feeling oneself to be on the outside. And this is what we see over and over again in provincial characters is that they're like, they have this sort of strained concentration as they look at the capitals. They look at the people, they look at the clothing, they look at the social mores, the way people dance, the way people dress, and they try to figure it out. They try to get it right. So it's an inferiority complex, but it's also incredibly interesting. And it generates um, all kinds of cultural production that ends up, I think, being very sophisticated, even though the people who are, who are producing it don't necessarily feel sophisticated. Um, so, uh, you know, you have lots of examples from kind of, uh, you know, less, less canonized writers from the 1830s through the 50s who talk about this, who talk, people like Plichiev, um, uh, uh, Solomon, Salagouk, who talk about provincials who are constantly kind of copying, frantically copying everything that comes their way. Um, now, of course, if you're a nobleman and you're on your estate, what you want to do is distinguish yourself from the provincials. And the way that you do that, if you have enough resources, is you make your estate seem like um, a, a self-sufficient entity that is actually not provincial, but is in effect the reflection of the capital. Um, so if, if, you're, if you're a rich and sophisticated enough nobleman and you can pull that off, say if you're, you know, Mr. Sheremietsev and you have your own opera company, um, you do not live on a provincial estate. You live on, you live almost like in your own world and you're the center of that world. Um, and what's interesting is the estates where it falls apart <laughs> and, and the estates sort of like fall apart into this kind of confusing, bumbling provincialness. So, for example, in Dead Souls, Manilov's estate, um, where he has like he'll have a peasant's hut that's made of these these logs and it's falling apart. And then right next to it, he has something something like I can't remember what it's called, the the arbor of friendship or something that he's copied from European estate design. And all of these things are mixed up together in a way that becomes very provincial when you can't pull it off. Right. 
Uh, yeah, and I remember he talks about how uh, they'll spend time together in this garden and they'll have very sophisticated conversations, but he can't quite name what the topics would be, right? Exactly, exactly. So, you know, you're, there's this kind of strenuous imitation that's happening, but then it sort of trails off or it gets a little ragged at the edges. Um, and then, and then you know, we have estates that are entirely self-sufficient centers. Um, in Anna Karenina, Levin State, a state is certainly not provincial in any way. Um, and there are plenty of examples of estates that, that make it work. I think it usually it has to do with resources, both material and cultural. Uh, so now that we've established some of the key concepts, uh, let's move on to the specific authors and literary works that you discuss in this context of symbolic geography. Uh, and the second chapter focuses on the pastoral and anti-pastoral in Pushkin's countryside. And here you make a distinction between Pushkin's portrayal of the provinces and their treatment by later 19th century writers. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about his provinces and what separates them from those who came after? Sure. Um, I think that Pushkin's version of Prevencia, when he uses the word Prevencia, is has almost nothing to do with the trope that I'm talking about. Um, which is really interesting because he lives at the same time, obviously, as as uh, some of the writers that I'm that I spend a lot of time analyzing. Um, Pushkin is not interested in a kind of. First of all, he's not at all interested in provincial towns or cities. Um, he's interested in the countryside, Vivienne, like we get in Ginanyagin, um, and he's interested in the states. Uh, this is a kind of nobleman's version of Herencia. And um, what that means is when you get what's sometimes called Prevencia Saint in Chinanegan, this kind of Prevencia, Pushkin's kind, is a repository of traditional culture, right? This is the Ladin family. This is their old ways and their jam making and their, their you know, uh, country dances, uh, their relationships with the peasantry and with folk culture. So this is really different from the kind of imitative striving that we see in, um, in other writers who are writing about Perencia. And then the other, the other thing that I think um, has something to do with Perencia in Pushkin's work is his rendering of the steps, particularly in The Captain's Daughter. In The Captain's Daughter, we see the Russian steps as a kind of liminal space it's basically um, a place that's still in when the story of the captain's daughter is set during the Kubachev up, uprising around 1780 um, or 1770, sorry. Um, uh, the steps at that historical moment are still kind of exotic, right? There's this ethnic mix. You have out of control Cossacks. The state is still trying to get it under control. But really, by the time Pushkin is writing the story, the steps are becoming provincial. So the captain's daughter is kind of a story about how a geographic space that was once wild and exotic was rendered boring, predictable, and provincial. It's kind of about that process, I would argue. Mm -hmm. Uh, so by the 1830s, you write that there had developed a literary stereotype of the provinces, you mentioned this before, this ahistorical and timeless, which is an image that comes to serve in later years as, quote, a static non-modernity against which other forms of time and historicalness take on value. Uh, can you give some examples of how writers between the 1830s and the 50s portrayed the provinces as the static space? Sure. Well, 
during this time, we have lots of mostly poverty stories set in provincial places. Um, the provincial places are never named, right? They're, they're never specified. Um, and almost every story starts out with something like, you all know what a provincial town looks like. They all look the same. Right? Mm. And then instead, and then you, you tend to have um, a lot of imperfective verbs uh, describing what happens all the time in these provincial places. And it's things that you supposedly already know are going to happen. Um, and these are these these are the the stories that are populated by all these characters who are kind of so frantic to know what's happening in the capitals because the capitals is where things happen where they're actually singular events it's where history is taking place and um, you see this for example in Herzen in Salagub in Tishev in in um, Solmov um, and what was really striking to me was when I was reading about uh, about British colonial fiction set, say, in India, how similar it was. All these stories about people, quote-unquote locals, who felt themselves out in the British colonies somewhere. They felt themselves stranded outside of time. Um, and they thought that there was no movement possible in these places. They could never catch up and be modern unless they, unless they left these places. Um, and went to some central place where history happened. And um, it, was, it was very striking how, how similar the vocabulary was in those, in those two situations. Um, so uh, we've talked before already about Nikolai Gogol, so let's go back to him in a little bit more detail. Uh, he plays a particularly important role in the development of this provincial trope. And as you write, quote, uh, Gogol's art um, that was to make provincia speak so powerfully and enigmatically to Russianness in a larger sense, and it was thanks to his radically original reworking of the trope, his ability to associate provincia with a range of meanings that had not previously evoked, that the image became such an enduring one. Um, so how did Gogol achieve this, and what are some of the new features that he brought to the understanding of the province? Um. Well, first of all, what was striking to me was when I read these less canonical writers who were writing around the same time as Gogol, um, they're, they're describing the provinces in many of the same ways, you know, as I've been saying, like repetition and mm-hmm. um, uh, copying. But Gogol, first of all, as we know, he pushes it to the point of surrealism, right? So everything that these other writers said about the provinces, he says it, um, you know, about he goes about 10 degrees further so that it becomes a little bit crazy, a little bit impossible, right? <laughs> so there's that, um, you know, a melon that costs, the, these provincials who believe that there's, uh, you know, a melon that costs 7,000 rubles or whatever. Um, the other thing he does is he he really leans into certain paradoxes about, about Provincia. And these paradoxes come to inform um, the trope for the rest of the 19th century. The first I would say is that for Gogol, the provinces are empty, right? There's there's Nietzsche, this word Nietzsche that comes up again and again when he's describing provincial places. But at the same time, they are the locus of a very, very thick materiality, a kind of near materiality. So he's constantly saying they're empty. At the same time, he's constantly listing physical objects that are kind of weighing down the life provincia. It's like a thick mire of mere materiality. At the same time that supposedly it's emptiness and no place. 
So that I think is a really important paradox that he that he develops. Um, and the other paradox that that he I think first he leans into is that okay the provinces are sort of nauseatingly familiar. They're always already known. You know, you know, he says like, well, you all know what a provincial inn looks like. You know, the the walls are going to be painted yellow. You know, they're going to be grease stains on the furniture, et cetera, et cetera. So it's familiar. You already know. And yet it's also a freak show full of complete weirdos. And, um, and he sort of brings those two things together. And many other writers would do that over the course of the 19th century. I think that he was the one who first established it. And then finally, I think the most important thing he does is he, he makes Rinsalnist into a mystery in the same way that he makes Russia into a mystery at the end of Dead Souls, right? He turns it into mm-hmm. a question. What could this possibly mean? So he, he will list a bunch of sort of strange paradoxical <laughs> characteristics and he'll say, what could it possibly mean? And we're drawn into that. Uh, something that image just came to mind for me of the sort of provincial absurdity is in Dead Souls Nazdadov offering Chichikov the the wine that he offers to strain the flies from. Uh, I just think that's kind of encapsulates a lot of this. I know. I love that line. And I also love when Nazdadov says they're sitting looking out over the land and see, see up to that line, everything up to that line is mine. See past mm. that line, everything past that line is mine too. <laughs> <laughs> the entire world. Um, so, yeah, this sort of like leaning into the absurdity of it. That's so wonderful. And, and I think it's because Gogol himself was, he was an outsider. He was a provincial, but not merely a provincial. Had he not been Ukrainian, I don't think he would have. I, I think that Ukrainianness really helped him in this way. I think if he had, say, just been from, um, you know, Saratov or, or somewhere more, someone where, where's a Blake Sphere or something like that. Someone ab- somewhere absolutely Russian, I think it would have been harder for him to push this weirdness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a recurring image in a lot of the novels you describe, including, of course, Gogol, um, is that of the provincial ball. Uh, so why is this such a common uh, kind of vid- trope in 19th century Russian literature? And how do writers use this type of event to portray these peculiarities of provincial life? Um, these are some of my favorite scenes, really. I love these descriptions of the ball. And well, first of all, what a ball is supposed to do, you know, if it's fully achieved and it's not, it's not falling apart, is that it's supposed to highlight cultural norms. Um, and there's, and they're supposed to be, they're supposed to be enacted so naturally that they seem natural, that they seem they're just your body doing the right thing, right? That's what dancing is. It's actually something you've had to learn, maybe somewhat laborious, laboriously, but it's supposed to be experienced both by yourself and by others who are watching you dance as this natural thing that's just happening. So it's kind of like this, it's supposed to be a perfect coming together of social social ritual and, and, and the body. And what happens instead in so many balls um, in, in literary representation is that they're really messed up. And so what is highlighted is people's inability to make it natural, right? It's not natural. They're dancing strangely. Their clothes are distractingly bizarre. Um, they're using words incorrectly. They're stepping on each other's feet. 
they're exposing their ugly skin um, in a way that is, above all, not natural, right? All of the effort that has been put in, that the provincials have put into imitating, to getting it right, all of the effort is exposed and they get it wrong. Usually they get it wrong. So I think that's why the ball is just, it's so useful. So, you know, you might like in, in Stasky's Demons, you literally have people, you know, blowing things up at a ball, like the whole political order sort of exploding at a ball. In the cherry orchard at the end of the, at the, end of the century, um, you have this completely motley group of people brought together um, who really shouldn't be at a ball anyway, right? The postmaster is at the ball, for example. Um, these, are not, these are not the balls of, say, war and peace, which are about staging a sort of coherent, graceful culture. It would be interesting to compare the uh, the provincial ball to the. Uh, it just made me think of the scene of the ball in Bailey's Petersburg um, when you were talking uh, about explosions, because that's uh, sort of a very different type of uh, uh, set of tropes. Yes, that would be uh, a great one to look at. I had not thought of that, but that would be really interesting. And it also makes me think of, to give a non-Russian example, the provincial ball in uh, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Yeah, yeah. I just taught that novel, and we talked a lot about, um, uh, you know, why is dancing important? <laughs> what could this possibly mean? Um, how? Why? Why is this taken so seriously? You know, this is—it's not a trivial thing in Pride and Prejudice at all. Um, who dances? How they dance? You know, who speaks to whom? All these things, it sort of assumes that this is this is kind of microcosmic representation of some really big, important things. Uh, now, in the fifth chapter, moving along, uh, you address uh, two other writers, Goncharov and Belinsky, and the way that they portray provincial culture. Uh, so what are some aspects of this culture that these authors explore, and what are some of the new features uh, that they bring to this imagined provincial space? I think that... Gonshurov and Medinsky, in in my opinion, are really outliers in when it comes to this trope and in very interesting ways. And I think it's because then the reason I, I read them together is that they both seem to think that it is possible to overcome one's own provinciality. Right? And some of the other writers that I'm talking about, and many of them, um, provincialness is a kind of permanent ontological con- condition. If you're, you know, you're provincial, you're just provincial and there's nothing you can really do about it. You might be able to make fantastic art because you're provincial. Um, somebody say like Platonov or, or Gogol, um, but you're never going to become non-provincial. Whereas Gancharov and Bilinsky both, I think, emphasize, and um, I'm talking about Abudnevi and the Historia for Gancharov and Bilinsky's many critical writings, that if you practice a lot, if you take in a lot of information, um, which is what the capital allows you to do, you can become a sophisticated non-provincial person. Um, so in, for both of them, I think their emphasis is really on, on the capital. And the reason that their emphasis is on the capital, even for provincials, is the capital is where the capital generates many, many different kinds of culture, many examples, many poems, many dresses, um, many different kinds of behavior. And when you see them all together, lined up against each other, you begin to develop these skills of discerning and judging, 
Sobielinski says the way to stop being a provincial intellectually is read a lot. And provincial for Bielinski has nothing to do with geographic location. Um, you could be provincial in Petersburg, in Moscow, or in the provinces for Bielinski. What it means for him is that you have not yet taken in enough information to become in a good judge, right? He's concerned with judging literature, right? Gancharov, I think, implies the same thing in Abutnagin Historia, in uh, Ordinary Story, um, which is that the, you have this provincial, Aduyev, young Aduyev, who comes from his provincial estate to Petersburg. Initially, he gets everything wrong. He misunderstands. He, he misjudges everything he sees. But he takes in a lot of information, and he gets better and better at judging. In the end, he's no longer provincial. Now, it doesn't mean it's a happy ending. Um, it's not necessarily a good thing that he becomes a non-provincial but for both Pancharov and Bilinsky, this is possible. They're really practical in that way. Um, there's nothing kind of metaphysical about provincialism for them, as there would be for somebody like Gogol or Chekhov. Does that, does that uh, help explain? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the next writer you discuss is Turgenev, um, whom Dmitry Merezhkovsky called the, the first Russian writer to be discovered by Europe. Um, and he's also the writer in whom the West uh, first sensed that Russia is also Europe, as you write. Uh, so how did Turgenev's affinity for and closeness to European culture uh, shape his own contributions to the provincial trope? Um, well, first of all, what's striking is that Turgenev, of course, is the sort of uber sophisticate, right? There's nobody in, in from the Russian point of view, there's nobody more European, more sophisticated, um, but if you, and he spends most of his life in France, but if you read, for example, the descriptions of Turgenev by French writers like the Goncourt brothers, they describe him as this, what do they say, this, this boyard or a, a kind of, um, you know, primitive, uh, primitive figure who's sort of like tramping out of the steps of Eastern Europe, right? So he's two things at once. And, um, I, I'm sure that, that Turgenev knew that he was two things at once. And uh, he, has, he, he has a number of novels where, where people leave their provincial homes. They go not necessarily to Petersburg or Moscow, sometimes there, but usually to Europe. And then they try to come home and they can't really come home. Um, and they've been sort of deformed by whatever they experienced elsewhere and it's not really possible to go home to these provincial places. Um, in Fathers and Sons, I would say that you have these, you have three estates in Fathers and Sons. None of the estates is really provincial, right? The estates in Fathers and Sons, each is its own place. And they're very different, but not, none of them is provincial in the sense of sort of anxious striving. Um, the... The center of provinciality in Fathers and Sons, again, is the anonymous provincial town, Borod N. And here is where all the little bits and bobs of, quote, European culture have washed up. And this is where you get this, um, this provincial intellectual woman, Kukshina, who's talking about things like Ralph Waldo Emerson, Bunsen Burners, Adam Smith, um, all jumbled up together. That's what happens to you in Turgenev if you get a little bit Europeanized, right? You have this sort of like jumble in your head of ideas that have no organic relationship to one another. 
and you just kind of spout them. Um, and we see that repeatedly in Turgenev. We see it in Smolk. We see it in Nest of the Gentry. Um, people whose educations or their Russians whose educations or whose exposure to European ideas have left them with no organic connection to their own place and time. Instead, with a sort of confusing set of unrelated ideas in, in their minds. And that's, in that sense, um, you know, their minds mirror what we're often um, told provincial architecture looks like. So we're told again and again, you get these descriptions of buildings, and this is in many writers from the 1830s all the way through 1900. What, what does provincial architecture look like? It looks like a whole bunch of stuff thrown together. Right. It's a little gothic. It's a little like a French villa. It's kind of like a peasant's hut. It's a sort of traditional Russian Orthodox church all thrown together. And this, I think, is, is an emblem for provincial cultures and motliness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Which is so- one I love. Like, I don't think that there's nothing better than provincial motliness. I love it. And I think it's, it's, more, it's more interesting. It's more aesthetically productive. Um, Whenever I say things like that, I, I worry that it's going to be heard as a diss because it's really not a diss. I mean, you could not have a writer like Platonov or, or Gogol um, or even Chekhov without provincial motliness. And the most important thing about that motliness is that it is, it's a reflection on Russian culture in general, right? That it's a syncretic culture. It's a latecomer. It's adopting European ideas all the time. And so this obsession with provincialness and peripheriality and kind of this mongrelized hybrid culture, it's not really just about the provinces, obviously. It's about Russia. It's about Russian culture. And all we have to do is look at the 19th century Russian prose tradition, which is, I think, the greatest one, you know, the most interesting, the most rich, to realize that provinciality can be a really good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as you said, uh, the sort of uh, inferiority complex doesn't just apply to the provinces, it also impl- uh, applies to those in St. Petersburg who feel inferior to the sort of quote unquote real European capitals, London, Paris. Exactly. So exactly. So when, you know, when Gogol's provincials are off in some little town and they're staring at Petersburg, they're doing exactly the same thing that, that somebody in Petersburg is doing when he's looking at Paris. Um, so you devote the seventh chapter uh, to women writers in the provinces who, um, quote, were for several decades among Russia's most widely read authors. And you write that, quote, to some degree, their writing complicates the familiar image of provincial tales as uh, places as a blank and meaningless. But it also reveals that they were never allowed to forget about the symbolic and geographic systems that relegated them to marginality. As a result, their work often reveals an especially direct engagement with these uh, systems. Uh, so could you discuss the distinguishing characteristics of the provincial tale, this is subgenre that women writers began to develop in the 1830s? Sure. Um, the first person who, who wrote about the provincial tale, and I think maybe gave that name to the subgenre, was Katrina Kelly in her work on, on women writers. So the provincial tale is about, typically it's about um, an exceptional woman, young woman, who's stuck in a provincial backwater um, where there's no one worthy of her exceptionalness, right? So it kind of, it, it, it dwells a lot, the, the subgenre examples in the subgenre tend to dwell a lot on um, uh, how 
she's better. This, the heroine is better than her environment. She deserves better. Um, and it's it, essential, essential to the subgenre is the belief that women are capable of more culturally than they are being allowed to do. So that's, that's the provincial tale. And, um, it, it could be adopted in various ways, but, um, uh, the, the, so the three writers that I chose to focus on, and there's so many more that I could have addressed, um, although I'm not, a, I'm not at all a specialist in, in women's writing. So I wrote about Irina Gan, who lived from 1814 to 1842, um, Maria Zhukova, 1805 to 55, and, uh, Nadezhda Kleshinska, 1824 to 1889. So I tried to kind of spread it out over, over the, um, over the I think what distinguishes them from um, the first two, certainly Gan and Zhukova, what distinguishes them from male writers who are writing about provincial places at this time is that they are trying to imagine how you could create a kind of productive cultural sphere by yourself in a provincial place, right? So they kind of come up with these defenses of provincial life. Um, they talk about nature. They talk about patriarchal social mores and the beauty in that um, and how you could, even if, even if your, your environment is kind of culturally impoverished, how you could create a coherent culture for yourself in the provinces. Um, so I think that Gan and Zhukova do that in various ways. Now, my favorite one is Kwasinskaya, um, uh, who was a little bit later, 1824, 1889. And I write about uh, her Borvist Pansionerka, the boarding school girl. And uh, for Kwasinskaya, there's absolutely no decent life to be had in provincial places, certainly not in this one, in this one novella. Um, her character has to escape. She has to get out of provincial, sort of this provincial mire, otherwise she'll die. Um, so in that sense, Mashinskaya has more in common, I think, with her male contemporaries. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's another uh, sort of subcategory that you address here, which is the regional writer. Uh, so can you talk about how regional, regionalism is defined and what is the contribution of the writers under this category to this trope? Yeah, I mean, again, the genesis of this book was thinking about why there's so little regionalism in yeah, Russia. Yeah. And I know that, that people who work on regional writers could certainly come back and list more of them for me. Um, and they do exist. But the issue is, why are they not uh, central to the canon? So again, like in, in American literature, the 19th century, regional writers are the high canon you have, whether it's, it's Emerson, Thoreau, Poe, um, Hawthorne, they're all associated with specific places, regions, and their highness is compatible with regionalism. What I saw happening as I thought about not only regionalism but canonization in in the Russian um, in the Russian tradition was that regionalism just wasn't compatible with highness in the same way. So you get a writer like Milnikovichevsky, for example, who writes these. He he writes. A lot of stuff during his life, but he writes these two ginormously long novels um, in the forests and, and, in, and in the mountains. Um, he writes a lot of stories, and they are devoted very, very specifically to a very specific kind of sub region 
of the Volga. Um, so they, they are regionalist writing. And the thing that's strange is that Melnikov always remains a little bit peripheral to the canon. And I would say that the same thing happens to, to Lescaut, Nikolai Lescaut, even though Lescaut is not a regionalist, right? He, he kind of wanders far and wide all over Russia, but he's not interested in the capitals. He's not interested in the Provincia Stalitsa binary. Um, he's just interested in kind of all of these places for their own sake. And he has these, these characters who are wandering around all over Russia. Um, he too remains you know, Liskov is definitely part of the canon, but he's not up there with Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, what these writers were, honestly, I think he probably should be. And I think, I think it's because of what I tried to articulate at the beginning of this interview, which is that the gaze of the center in the Russian tradition, the gaze of the center kind of sets the terms, makes the rules, right? And whatever is seen from the center is seeing that that's what becomes important. And if you're a writer like this book and you really just don't care that much about the subject, um, I think it affects your chances for canonization. Hmm. Oh, that, that is a really interesting uh, point. Um, and he's, so, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. No, I just, I, I, I thought about it a lot when I was reading through all these school stories that um, if they happen, if one of his wandering characters happens to, you know, make an appearance in Petersburg or Moscow, what happens in Petersburg or Moscow for them is no more important than what happens anything else. And in fact, it might be less important, right? You just pass through. It's just a place like any other place. It's not sort of saturated with a special meaning um, the way that it is with other writers. Uh, so we now come to the kind of the giants of the 19th century novel, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, right? Uh, so it's kind of obviously a big question, uh, but what are the sort of, sort of the key differences between their symbolic geography uh, in relation to the Provincia? Um, I would start with Tolstoy <clears throat> just to say that he's really not interested in the Provincia study to binary, excuse me. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, he doesn't tend to reproduce that binary. Um, his, the way that he imagines geographic space is kind of rural space punctuated by estates, which are places of culture and labor, um, and the, the kind of uh, space around those estates would direct their attention and their resources toward the estates. And then, of course, you have Petersburg and Moscow, and Tolstoy does reproduce the, the pretty familiar Petersburg versus Moscow binary that we were talking about before, um, but he's really not interested in the Saritia versus Provincia binary in a way that would drain Provincia of meaning. Not at all. Um, and Tolstoy, Tolstoy himself, and if we wanted to explain it, explain it in biographical terms, he's not dependent on the capitals, right? He's, he's the king of the world at Yesnipoliana. He spends his whole life there. That is his center. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, when when uh, the last part of Anna Karenina is rejected um, by uh, the journal where it was going to be published, Tolstoy just uses his money and publishes on, on, on his own. Right? He's not dependent on all the structures that exist in the capitals to sort of generate and disseminate culture. Um, and I think that's reflected in his text very clearly. 
Dostoevsky, on the other hand, is completely dependent on the structures in the capital. He's a professional writer. He's a professional journalist. And I think that that is part, I'm not going to explain, I'm not going to say this is, this is, I, I, I would not say this is why Dostoevsky's symbolic geography is what it is, but Dostoevsky absolutely reproduces the um, capital versus provinces binary. And he has lots of anonymous provincial places. Um, and uh, the, the clearest example would be demons, where demons is based on, on real life events. Those real life events happened in, oh my gosh, I'm even forgetting if it was Moscow or Petersburg. I think they actually happened in Moscow. But when he rewrites them in Demons as a novel, he relocates them to the provinces and he relocates them to an anonymous provincial place, right? So he anonymizes things that don't even have to be anonymous. So um, now moving along to Anton Chekhov, uh, you start his chapter with a discussion of Three Sisters, which is a play in which the main characters living in the provinces continuously evoke Moscow until, quote, it ends up sounding like a talisman intended to stave off some dark truth about provincial lives, which I thought was just an interesting, very interesting sentence. Um, so can you discuss Three Sisters in the context of Chekhov's contributions to uh, the provincial trope? Sure. So we all remember how in Three Sisters, they, they sit on their porch or they in their living room or whatever, and the sisters say, Moscow, Moscow, you know, we're going to go there. And um, I, one really wonderful response to this was by Mandelstam, who, who basically said, well, why don't they just buy a ticket already? You know, why not go to <laughs> Moscow? You know, we don't really understand what is constraining them, why they don't just go. And I think the reason they don't just go is that you can't really get there, right? What they're, what they're looking for, what they're fantasizing about is a kind of fullness of culture and meaning that they're imagining is located in Moscow, but they know it's not really located in Moscow. It's not really like they would show up in Moscow and all of a sudden, you know, life would be luminous with significance. Um, instead, it's kind of always going to be just out of reach. They're always going to be grasping for it. Um, and uh, it, I, I think in that sense, Three Sisters, instead of being about living in the provinces, it's about living in a world where meaning is not given to you um, and may never be given to you. <clears throat> and um, Chekhov is really interesting because sometimes he reproduces the, the kind of capital province binary. And he says that, you know, living in the provinces is, is hell and you really got to get out and get to Moscow or maybe get to Petersburg. Um, but sometimes he complicates that binary. For example, in Chekhov, characters are much more likely to go back and forth between the capitals and provincial places. You know, they travel on trains. Trains are a big deal in mm -hmm. Chekhov. Earlier train or earlier, um, the capital and the provinces often seem to be completely cut off from each other, almost like ontologically, like they don't even exist in the same, you can't get there from here in mm -hmm. say the text through maybe like the 1850s. Um, by the time you get to Chekhov, there's kind of all this back and forth. And so when you have the three sisters saying, Moscow, Moscow, um, you know, they're not really talking about the fact that it's, it's, it's objectively impossible to get to Moscow. You could get there. It's about the fact that even if you got there, it might not be different. 
So very much like in Turgenev, as you said, you kind of can't go home to the provinces again once you become a European person. It's also right. difficult to actually get to the capital, even if you're there physically. Exactly. And which I think is, that's that's why this this geography is symbolic and not real. You can imagine, you know, it's where you imagine meaning to be or not to be. And But I do love it in Chekhov, how he, he mixes it up and he has people travel all around and go back and forth in a way that they didn't necessarily do earlier in the century. Um, and the other wonderful thing that we see in Chekhov in the cherry orchard, we see in much the same way that in, in Captain's Daughter, we saw the steps kind of in the process of becoming provincial. They were going from being wild to being boring. Um, something, something along those lines happens in the cherry orchard because so you have this, this cherry orchard. And for a long time, the way the characters say, the, the, according to the characters, for a long time, it was its own remarkable singular, special place. It was where they grew certain kinds of cherries and people came from all over to buy them and to see them. And there was this like singular manor house there. Um, and then what happens? Well, then what happens is that the railroad comes. And what the railroad does is it transforms the cherry orchard into just real estate, right? It transforms right. it into just plots for dodges. Um, and it's no longer a singular place. It's just another one of those places along the railroad that you can get to from, from some nearby city. So people will buy the plots and build little weekend houses on them. So Chekhov is very attentive to the transformation of space. For, for a writer like Gogol or, say, Herzen or even Dostoevsky, um, um, what's provincial is kind of always provincial. It's it's static and stuck. In Chekhov, things are much less static. Um, and yeah, that's, uh, I think, a really important point about trains and kind of the mobility inherent to Chekhov's uh, stories that don't quite appear in some of the others. Right. And you start to see it in Dostoevsky, but um, he doesn't take it as seriously yet um, as something that might reshape Russian space. Uh, now, you end your study with an examination of the last generation of Russian writers working before the revolution, uh, and you focus on Mikhail Saltykov-Shedrin uh, and Fyodor Solagub, and you write that these writers, quote, feel like endpoints. They evoke what one might call a terminal provinciality, and their texts also, quote, point forward to how the province's trope will make itself felt in the 20th century. So what are some of the distinguishing features of symbolic geography in their works? I think in both Shidrin and Salagu, um, provinciality has reached a sort of end point in that um, the stasis um, and the iterativeness that we've seen throughout, throughout the 19th century in these literary works, it's become almost like frozen and congealed. It's at the point where nothing can happen except repetition, death, maybe eating right so you have in both of them this like very unpleasant thick materiality um and you have but you have no you have no events and combined with this this kind of thick materiality you have emptiness and meaninglessness you have just stuff and they're stuck you know in Salagub, they're stuck in another gordon n um, and we're told in the epigraph uh, to the to Salagub's uh, petty demon, the epigraph is set, says, this isn't Paris. Oh, no, this isn't Paris. 
right? So we're in the ultimate like non-Paris um, in Salagub's Demon, and we're stuck in a place that's a version of hell, like there's no exit. Um, in Shidrin, we're in another kind of stuck hellish place, which is kind of the end of the line for the Russian gentry estate, um, where now all you have is starvation, people starving to death while surrounded by piles of food, rotting and not rotting food. Um, so it, it's like there's no further development really in either of these in, in either of these places. It's hard to imagine any movement forward. Um, and that's why I, I talk about them as kind of terminal provinciality. And how was their um, their sort of use of the provincial trope informed by contemporary historical and cultural developments? Um, well, in, in Shivrin's case, certainly the decline of the gentry, which was everybody's obsession in the in the you know last third of the nineteenth century. Um, so I think it was like a rewriting of of the um, kind of civilization story of of the gentry estate, which is supposed to be about kind of prosperous, coherent, meaningful culture out, you know, in the, in the countryside somewhere. So there's that, there's the sense that that is falling apart. Um, in Salagul, I think it's the sense that, that the state's interventions, you know, the Russian imperial state's interventions have become not just oppressive, but meaningless, right? You're the, the hero, such as he is, of the book is a school inspector, and his only job seems to be to harass people um, and sort of destroy things. So I think there it's um, uh, kind of the, the degenerate nature of the Russian state in the provincial town. Uh, so to wrap up our conversation, uh, could you tell us about any current or upcoming projects that you're working on? Yes, what I ended up getting interested in um, as a result of this book was uh, problems associated with bad taste and specifically mischanstva. Uh-huh. So, um, <laughs> we all know that by Gorky's time, mischanstva has a particular meaning. In the Soviets, you know, it's just a slur in Soviet times if you're Mishansky. And it, it, it has a whole kind of set of meanings that that we associate with the early Soviet period. So what I'm interested now in now is figuring out how it got those meanings. Because obviously, you know, were just a sort of subcast. It was just a class designation, a subcast designation originally. And through much of the 19th century, it was quite a while. I, I'm, my current thinking is that it probably happened in Hansen, um when it started to take on this intense sort of like negative cultural resonance? When did it become a slur to call somebody um, um, a mishinin? And I love mishanstva because, because it's bad taste that's so much more interesting than good taste, usually. Um, and so what, what I'm thinking about, about now is um, how do we imagine mishanstva? What is the relationship between taste and class starting like mid 19th century and um, how does it, how is it still evolving today? Our understanding of, um, of what is the proper relationship to the world or the improper relationship to the world that is embodied in your taste. So that's what I've been thinking about recently.
Fantastic. It sounds fascinating. And hopefully uh, with your next monograph, you'll be able to join us again and discuss it. Um, okay. So Thank you so much. I really appreciate the questions. So today I've been speaking with Dr. Anne Lounsbury of New York University about her 2019 monograph, Life is Elsewhere, Symbolic Geography in the Russian Provinces, 1800 to 1917. Life is Elsewhere is now available from Cornell University Press. Dr. Lounsbury, thank you again for joining me. Thank you very much.